Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. And Abraham stood still before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare it. I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And he said, oh, let the Lord Lord not be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for the confidence that it is true, that it is right, that it declares the way of godliness and presents for us the way of salvation in Jesus. Every word of it, Lord, we believe points to Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would meet with us in this place, that you would teach us, that it would be you who we are learning about. It would be you who we are focused on. It would be you who is celebrated in this place. God, may we not just be hearers only of the word, but doers responding to what you have to say to us today, Lord. Empower us to not only understand, but to obey your word. God, we give you ourselves and, and this, this time and our gathering and our lives and, and, and everything that we are able to, Lord, and ask that you would have your way today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 1989, Billy Joel released what would be his third and final number one hit on the Billboard Top 40. Any Billy Joel fans out there? Anyone want to take a guess at what that song was? 
No one? We didn't start the fire. We didn't start the fire. I have distinct memories of myself as a child with my Walkman in my front yard, not my Discman, not my MP3 player, my Walkman with my cassette tape with just one song on it that I continued to rewind and press play and rewind and press play because there was no loop button and listening over and over and over again to this list of names and events that my uh, probably eight-year-old mind couldn't possibly have understood the significance of what I was singing or what I thought I was singing, probably stringing together syllables and not actually saying the names and and events recorded in the song and just singing this song over and over and over again. I know this song very well. Well, uh, apparently this year, the modern band Fallout Boy has covered We Didn't Start the Fire with an entire new list of people and events that were significant since 1989 until today. I happened to hear this song while on a road trip with my family. It's not as good as the first, but I won't hold that against Fallout Boy. The thing that stuck out to me as I heard the song, was not the, the new events, the new people, uh, things and places and tragedies and traumas and dramas that I was much more aware of now listening to it as an adult. That wasn't what stood out to me. What stood out to me was the chorus. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. Y'all know it, sing it with me. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. And I listened to this and I realized, wow, what this song means. Do you want to hear my interpretation of the song, We Didn't Start the Fire? My interpretation of the song is, these are all the problems with the world. They're not my problem. We didn't start it. I didn't do it. We didn't light it. Not my fault. It's just always been. We tried to fight it. Listen to my song. Look at my social media rant, my YouTube rant, my my virtue signaling. We tried to fight it, but we didn't light it. All the problems with the world, not my problem. Billy, fallout boy, you can do better than that. Really? We're just going to spout atrocities and say, I didn't do it. The truth is each of us, could come up with our own list of names and events and, and, and atrocities to fill our own versions of this song. Heck, in the last month, we could fill an entire verse. For the first time in U.S. history, Speaker of the House ousted. Israel attacked. Israel at war. Earthquake in Nepal Hundreds, if not thousands of people dead, anticipating the, the body counts to rise. We have a 16-year-old girl beaten to death in Iran because she wasn't wearing her veil properly. All kinds of trauma and drama in the world. And that's just, that's the last 30 days. That's like October. And there's more that you're aware of, I'm sure. 
And the common experience of believers is to look out at the world and say, God, when are you going to do something about this? Why don't you stop this? Why don't you put an end to this? We're waiting. How long, oh Lord, will you allow these atrocities to continue in this world? And then you have people outside of the church who are watching. And they're saying, if God were real and he were loving and he were powerful, then he would do something about this. But they see no intervention. And because there's no intervention, they assume that God either doesn't exist or if he does, he's weak. Can't do anything about it. He won't do anything about it. See, our text today is an introduction to a much larger story, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that we will get into next week. But it provides also an introduction, not just to that story, but it provides also incredibly important context, not only for how we are to understand the spiraling of sin and evil and chaos in the world, but also to understand what God is going to do about sin in the world and how he has invited us to partner with him in his plans for the world. What if you were invited to participate in the intervention that we long for? What if you are invited to participate in the very thing that God wants to do to bring healing and salvation and freedom to the world? What if God wants you to partner with him in that? What if the intervention you're looking for, God is looking for you to accomplish. See, Abraham had received this mysterious visitation uh, from the Lord Yahweh in the presence of these three messengers that arrived at his tent. But God's plan was not only to stop at Abraham's place, he's on his way to the city of Sodom. And before the entourage of angels departs for Sodom, the Lord questions in the hearing of Abraham whether or not to tell Abraham what he's about to do. Now, God is not confused. He's not wondering, okay, what are the pros and what are the cons of disclosing to Abraham what I'm about to do? No, he is saying this out loud in the hearing of Abraham so Abraham can hear God's process. My wife and I did this to our kids on our, on our road trip. We had a, a surprise stop for them that we didn't tell them about. And so one morning we woke up and we're having breakfast and we're like, do you, should we tell them? No, we should, no, let let them anticipate it. Should should we tell them what we're going to do? Now, God's not having fun with Abraham. He's not, but he's, 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 he's saying this out loud so that Abraham can also hear him again, affirm he's going to be a great nation. He's going to be a mighty nation. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham as he raises his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They are going to be a blessing to this world. And so God says in the hearing of Abraham, all of these things to reaffirm those promises, but also God says these things in the hearing of Abraham because God has entered into a partnership with Abraham. God has entered into a partnership with Abraham. And this is significant. Remember, God made a covenant with Abraham. We'll talk about this in a second. A covenant is a partnership. And to be a member of God's covenant people, this is significant for us as believers, members of God's covenant people, as members of God's covenant people, 
It means to be in partnership with God. We're in partnership with God. And if you've been following along through our series through Genesis, this shouldn't be a surprise to you. Remember, we talked about when God created humanity in the Garden of Eden. He made them in his own image, in his likeness. And he placed them in the garden and gave them the responsibility to rule and reign in the world as God's vice regents, as his, as his ambassadors. They were to care for and cultivate the world in such a way that showed all of creation what God was like. Just as they went about the ordinary business of building families and working the ground, creation was supposed to see the goodness and the, and the love and the generosity, the abundance of God as humanity brought the world to flourishing. We were to partner with God in the world that he had made to bring it to its greatest possible flourishing. But the humans rebelled against God. And so they were removed from the presence of of God in the garden and their partnership with God was broken. No longer could they do the thing that God asked them to do. And we see instead of flourishing in Genesis, we see violence, we see death, we see atrocities, we see the world spiraling into sin and decay. The partnership with God was broken. But then here in the life of Abraham, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant is a binding relationship between two parties that's legal. There's written documentation of ancient covenants and it's spiritual. There was these sacrifices that were made that sealed the covenant. And so God makes a covenant partnership with Abraham. It's similar to contracts of today. If you can enter a contract with someone and become business partners. And so what happens here in the covenant between Abraham and God is God is restoring his partnership with humanity in this one person, Abraham, that he makes a covenant with. Makes a covenant with Abraham and with his family, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Israel. And they are to live in partnership with God, from this point on, God's plans for the world are intimately tied with Abraham and with his family. Now, again, we see in the New Testament, this partnership. I was reminded in our pre-service prayer meeting this morning, which, by the way, all of you are welcome to attend at 9.15 a.m. out here in the lawn. We pray for the, 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 the service, the gathering, those who are going to be here, for the preaching of the word, for the worship. We pray for everything that's going to take place. You're welcome to join us. I was reminded in this prayer meeting this morning that Jesus, when he fed the 5,000 with just a couple of loaves and a few fish, That he blessed it and broke it, but he gave it to his disciples and they're the ones that distributed it. Jesus was meeting the needs of the crowd, but he was meeting the needs through his disciples. They were partnering with Jesus in his ministry to feed the multitudes. Again, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, I love the way the book of Acts begins. The book of Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote the gospel of Luke. And in the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke says, Oh, Theophilus, in my last work, I told you all of the things that Jesus had begun to do and teach that he began to do and teach. The implication being the book of Acts is all the things that Jesus continued to do and teach. There's just one problem. After the first like eight or 10 verses, Jesus has ascended into heaven and the rest of the book is about what the disciples were doing. 
It's called the Acts of the Apostles. And what Luke understands is that anytime the apostles, anytime Christ's disciples, anytime believers in Jesus are doing the things that Jesus did, it's actually Jesus in them doing it. Paul says it's by his energy that he powerfully works in me that I strive in all of these things. We see in the Bible from beginning to end that God wants to invite you into partnership with him. He wants to invite you into his purposes, into his plans in the world. See, becoming a Christian is not just affirming intellectual things about God or the identity of Jesus. Being a Christian is not just enjoying uh, the forgiveness of sins or the hope of eternal life. Becoming a Christian is about entering into a covenant partnership with God in Christ. That he puts his spirit within you, the spirit of Jesus to move within you, to lead you and empower you to do the things that Jesus did in partnership with God and his mission in the world. He's invited us into a partnership with him. It is an intimate partnership. So it's because of this partnership with Abraham that God discloses to Abraham all that he plans to do. He says, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now one might ask, why does God need to go see? Isn't God omniscient? Doesn't God already know? Why does God need to go see for himself? It's important to recognize that God here is not acting as an investigator, trying to learn the facts. God is acting here as a judge. Abraham said, shouldn't the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is acting as a judge. And so he's not going to learn the facts. He is going to publicly establish the facts so that when he brings justice, when he brings judgment, no one will have an excuse because the judge himself has seen, affirmed, and established that what is happening is evil and requires justice. So God is going as a judge. He did the same thing in the Tower of Babel story. He said, let us go down and see what's happening. He already knew, but he's going down as a judge to establish the facts, not facts he didn't know, but to establish the facts publicly so that when judgment comes, there is no excuse. And so at this point in the story, God discloses to Abraham what he's about to do. And then two of the angelic entourage, they leave and they go towards Sodom. But Abraham and God, the Lord, they remain together there in their place. And in God's continued presence, Abraham, as God's covenant partner, sees an invitation to respond. Now, I want to ask you to be honest Don't say it out loud, but think about this. If God came to you and disclosed to you his plans for judgment against the sin of the world or a sin of a local population, God's going to come down and, and, and bring judgment. God discloses that to you. How do you respond? I know some people 
who look out at the sin in the world and they get so angry by it and rightfully so, but have such a hatred for those who are committing the atrocities that they hear that God's going to come bring judgment. They're going to go pop their bowl of popcorn and wait for the fireworks. Oh, God's going to get you. It's about time, Lord. Yes. That's in some of us. It is. All of us, perhaps, depending on the sin. That's God is bringing judgment against. Others will hear about judgment against sin and go, how dare you, God? You're a God of love. How could a God of love condemn sinners? How would you respond? God's going to bring justice, judgment on the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. He discloses that to Abraham. How does Abraham respond. Really quickly, let me just fast forward in scripture. You know that God has disclosed to you the judgment that is coming against sin and sinners in the world, right? Jesus said that he's going to come back. He's going to separate the righteous from the wicked like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, that the righteous will enter into the the kingdom of heaven, but that the wicked will experience a punishment that was reserved only for Satan and his demons, the the fires of hell. We know from the book of Revelation that, that Jesus wins. Sin, Satan, and death, they lose. And they will be cast away from the presence of God. We know the judgment, the justice that is coming to the world against every sin. And every sinner will have to stand and give an account. God has disclosed that to us, the church, in his word, because we are his covenant partners. You know he has told us how this will end. How do we respond? pop our popcorn and watch the fireworks? Do we get indignant with God because he's doing something differently that, oh, if I were God, I'd be more loving. I'd I'd be a little more forgiving, Lord. How do we respond? I took a hike yesterday uh, up Franklin, Franklin Trail, and there's a sign on Franklin Trail for those of you who have hiked Franklin Trail that says, uh, absolutely no fires of any kind. Right? No smoking, no fire pits, no, like all of these different things. No, no fires of any kind. Why? Because this is California. Okay? And California burns. Okay? Many of you remember the Thomas fires. Okay? There's no fires of any kind because it's dangerous. Now imagine you're on Franklin Trail and you see some kids playing with matches. Right? I haven't seen kids play with matches in like decades and decades. Why? Because this is California. And even children know that's stupid. Don't play with matches, kids, back there in the corner. Don't play with matches. Let's say you're on Franklin Trail. You see some kids playing with matches. What are you going to do? You're going to intervene. You're not going to sit there and go, oh, but they're having so much fun. I don't, I don't want them to think negatively of me. I don't want them to think that I'm one of those judgmental human beings who don't want to die. You're going to intervene. You're going to be like, knock that off. You're going to take the matches. You might even report them to their parents or to the authorities if you know who they are and how you feel about that child. You are going to do something about it. You are going to intervene. See, because there are innocent people who could suffer at the hands of a foolish act, Countless lives could be lost in fires in California. You are going to intervene. 
And so Abraham intervenes. He intervenes on behalf of the righteous. This is how Abraham responds when God discloses his plan for judgment. Abraham intervenes and Abraham demonstrates that he is not only a member of God's covenant people invited into covenant partnership with him, but that the primary way that God's people actively partner with him in the world is through prayer. Abraham intervenes through prayer. Now we can read this passage. We don't necessarily see what we would call prayer, right? Abraham doesn't bow his head and fold his hands and say, dear Lord. He has a conversation with God. Guys, prayer is one of the most powerful spiritual tools we have. One of the most incredible resources we have tapping into the power and presence of God to work in the world and to work in our own hearts And yet we can overcomplicate it by thinking it's something different than just conversation with God. Abraham draws near to the presence of God and talks to him. Shares his concerns, shares his requests. Prayer is just, just conversation with God. I think we would all pray a lot more if we realized that prayer was just conversation with God. You don't need to like muster up your spiritual energy and use King James language. You just need to talk to God like you would talk to anyone in your life. And so Abraham prays. And this kind of intervening prayer is called intercession. Fly in here. It's called intercession or intercessory prayer. It's acting as an intermediary between God and the person that you are praying for or the situation that you are praying for. It's what some people call standing in the gap. We say in prayer oftentimes, Lord, I lift up this person to you or this situation to you, where we're by, by interceding for them, we're kind of standing between God and this person and trying to bring that person into the power and the presence of the Lord. We intercede, we, we stand in the gap. And so beginning at 50 righteous people, Abraham says, if there's 50 righteous people, are you gonna wipe away the whole city? And God says, no. He says, what about 45? God says, no. He keeps on working his way down the line, like bargaining with God. How low can you go? How low can we possibly get? And ultimately what we'll find out in next week is that God would have spared the city for one righteous person. And so he brings the, the, the righteous person out and brings judgment on the city as we will see next week. Abraham persists in prayer in this place of humility and yet persistence. He's like, I am but dust and ashes. And yet, Lord, far be it from you. This humble yet persistent prayer. In Luke 18, Jesus is telling a parable in order to uh, teach his disciples, that they should always pray and not lose heart. They should continue to persist in prayer. And so he tells this parable about an unjust judge who neither fears God nor respects man, yet because there is a widow who is banging on his door, the the unjust judge says, I will give her justice so she'll stop bothering me. 
And the, the moral of the story is, is that God's not like an unjust judge. God is a just judge. He's a, he's a good father in heaven. And if an unjust judge will give justice to a widow just because she's pestering him, then how much more will God give justice to his children, his covenant partners who come and plead with him? Jesus says you should pray and keep praying and not lose heart. Yet he ends by saying this. In Luke 18, verse 8, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You should always pray and not lose heart. Persist in prayer. Continue praying. Stand in the gap, disciples. And when I return, I wonder if I will find that kind of faith. When Christ returns, we find the kind of faith on earth that stands in the gap, that prays for the salvation of souls, that prays that God's judgment not fall on those in our communities. Jesus is looking for intercessors. So Abraham is this beautiful picture of what it looks like to intercede, what it looks like to stand in the gap. He doesn't stand in judgment. He stands in the gap. He doesn't pop his popcorn and watch the fireworks. He's got concerns. His nephew Lot is in Sodom and he assumes possibly that there's more people who are righteous also. And so he prays, he stands in the gap. But there's another example of intercession in the Bible, there's several examples. One of them is found in Exodus chapter 32. The children of Israel have just made the golden calf. God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt in a miraculous way. And they're in the middle of the wilderness out at Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And the children of Israel are down in the camp. They make the golden calf and they start worshiping the golden calf, bowing down to it. Oh, Israel, here is your God who led you out of Egypt. And God tells Moses in Exodus 32, says, Moses, get away from me. I'm going to, my anger is going to burn hot against them. I'm going to destroy Israel. Moses, I'll make you a great nation. I'm done with them, Moses. I'll make you a great nation. And listen to what Moses says, even though Moses is furious with the children of Israel. Moses is so mad that when he'll come down the mountain, he'll break the tablets that God wrote the 10 commandments on. He'll crush them up into a powder, mix it in with water and make Israel drink it. He is mad. And this is what Moses says, Exodus 32, 31 through 32. Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses says, God, forgive their sin. And if you don't, destroy me too. Why? Because Moses knows God's made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the children of Israel. He's made a promise to them to give them the land, to make them a great nation. And if God's not going to be faithful to that promise, Moses wants no part of that deal. God, forgive them according to your promise. Yet if you don't, then blot me out as well. He doesn't stand in judgment of the people. He's furious with the people, but he doesn't sit there and say, oh God, you're gonna make me a great nation? God, awesome, destroy them. 
No. He intercedes. He intervenes. And God relents from the disaster that he was going to bring on Israel. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. God invites us into partnership and asks us to ask for the thing that he desires to do so that we can partner with him in this world. There is a tragic example in the Old Testament of God looking for someone to intercede, but none could be found. In Ezekiel chapter 22, God recites this list of wickedness that's taking place in the lives of the people. And he says this in verse 30 and 31, and I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach to stand in the gap before me, for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord. They deserved judgment, and yet God wanted to show mercy, yet no one in the nation would pray for it. God wanted to show mercy, but nobody asked him to show mercy. And so he gave them what they deserved. And you see in God's heart, this willingness to look over their sins, to pass over their sins. If someone would only ask, they might be forgiven. But there was no one who would stand in the gap. And so they got what they deserved. Judgment came. All of these pictures of intercession in the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses and God looking for an intercessor in Ezekiel 22 and all of it, it's this, it's this role of a priest. It's, in fact, this text, our text says that Abraham drew near. It's the very thing that, that priests would do when they would worship in the temple. They would draw near, the scripture says. It's an act of worship, worshipfully approaching the presence of God to minister before him. Abraham draws near as a priest and intercedes. And a priest would go into the temple and they would intercede for the sins of the people. They would make the sacrifice and the sins of the people would be forgiven as he sprinkled the blood of the atonement sacrifice on the horns of the altar in the Holy of Holies. Uh, Abraham is acting as a priest. Moses is acting as a priest. God is looking for priests who will stand in the gap and pray for God grace and mercy, pray for forgiveness and compassion, pray that sin would be prevent, pre, uh, uh, repented of, pray that salvation would come. He is looking for intercessors, but ultimately all of this desire, all of this desire for someone, something to intervene between the wrath of God and the, the, the wrath that we deserve for our sin, all of it points to Jesus Christ, who in Romans eight thirty four says, is the one who died more than than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, standing at the right hand of God, interceding for you, praying for you, intervening in your life in the very presence of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, praying for you. And what is his prayer? What is Jesus saying before the throne of God? He is not saying like Abraham, destroy the wicked, but save the righteous. 
If we were regarded according to Abraham's prayer, we would still be lost. He is not praying as Moses prayed. God, if you're going to destroy them for the sin, destroy me also. If we were regarded according to Moses' prayer, we would still be lost. That's not Jesus' intercession. He is at the right hand of the Father as a present perpetual reminder that he was blotted out instead of the wicked. He doesn't say blot me out as well. He says blot me out instead, Father. Let me take their judgment that the wicked deserve, that they might be regarded with the righteousness that I deserve. Look, if we were regarded any other way, but through the intercession of Jesus, we would all be lost. As Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. If you're here and you think that human beings are mostly good, I would direct your attention to Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. We're not. We're not good. We are the wicked. We are the ones cut off from covenant partnership with God because we rebel against him in our sin. But Jesus stands before God on your behalf and says, I have been blotted out instead. He gives us his righteousness. He takes from us our sin. And we are regarded as righteous. Not a righteousness that we deserve, but a righteousness that was graciously given to us. And it is this righteousness that we as the church plead to God on behalf for this sinful world. Lord, let your righteousness be counted to them as well. When they put their faith in Jesus, when they repent from their sins, give them your righteousness, spare them as well. We stand in the gap and we pray for this broken world. Not, I didn't start the fire. Not my problem. Lord, there is a problem, but you can solve it. Christ has solved it. Let Christ's sacrifice apply to them. Draw them to repentance. Draw them to salvation. Draw them to yourself. Bring them into the body of Christ. The primary way that we partner with God in his purposes and plans in this world as a church is through prayer. By interceding for this community and for the lost so that they might be saved. James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And you might be thinking, I'm not a righteous person, but remember what we just said. God says you are. Because of Jesus, God says you are. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, then you have heard me say some pretty heavy things. That your sin deserves judgment. Deserves the wrath of God. You've been cut off from the partnership that God wants to have with humanity. And your sin will be judged and you will not be able to give an account on that day. 
but salvation is offered to you. Jesus can take away your sin and has taken your judgment away in your place. If you put your trust in Jesus, you can receive the righteous reward that only Christ deserves, but that every believer enjoys. Salvation is offered to you, not when you get your life together, not when you clean up your act, not when you're good enough, not when you can finally muster up the the courage to confess your deepest, darkest secrets. No, now through faith, through believing that Christ died for your sins and trusting to follow him as Lord, as, as a covenant partner with him to do his purposes and his plans in this world. Through faith, you receive Jesus. That's who you are. You can leave this place under the grace of God. God is looking for people, not who will acknowledge his existence, but who will be partners with him in this world as he brings grace and salvation to all who believe. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, then I am calling you very practically to commit to prayer. There is a ton of things that you can do for God in your careers, in your families, your vocations, your hobbies, your, your, your service in the church. There are tons of things that you can do for God. But if we will not pray, Jesus said, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What kind of faith? Faith to pray, faith to intercede, faith to stand in the gap. These are very, very practical. No one can ever leave this place and go, he didn't tell me what I need to do. I did. I told you to believe. And now I'm going to tell you to show up on Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for our prayer meeting as a church. You laugh. I am dead serious. It is a very practical way to partner with God in his mission in the world through prayer. Look, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I need people around me to remind me of the things that I should be praying for. And when I get together in a prayer group and I hear the prayers of the saints, I am reminded, oh yes, Lord, I should pray for that thing. One of the reasons we don't pray as much as we would like to privately is because we don't pray at all corporately. Did you know that the primary pattern for prayer in the New Testament is corporate. We just went through the Lord's prayer together not too long ago. Jesus taught us to pray our father, not my father, our father. The primary pattern for prayer in the New Testament is corporate. You don't get your personal prayer life together until it's good enough, until you use flowery enough English, and then you finally bring that language into the corporate prayer meeting. No, the reason our private prayer lives are struggling is because we're not praying corporately. Now, some of you are, so please don't take this as an unnecessarily heavy rebuke, but some of us aren't. Wednesdays, 7 a.m. Some of you got to get to work. Some of you got to get to school. I understand it. Leave when you have to. But from 7 to about 8 o'clock, we're going to be there praying. Come and pray. Intercede. Stand in the gap. Ask the Lord to bring grace and mercy to those in our community, in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces who desperately need it. 
They're like kids playing with mashes on the hillside. Something is going to burn. Intervene. Intercede for this community. Maybe you're here today and you need someone to be interceding for you. You're lost. You're struggling. You're hurting. You are desperate for the grace and compassion and presence and power of God in your life. If you are here and you need somebody interceding for you, in a moment, the worship team is gonna come up and the prayer ministry is gonna stand on the sides here to my right and to my left. And they are here to pray for you. They are here to intercede for you. You can come and share with them what you are experiencing. And they're not gonna stand in judgment. They're gonna stand in the gap. They're going to plead the mercies of God, the truth of the gospel, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit into your life. And God will answer. Why? Because he's promised to. He has promised that he will answer the prayers of his people when we pray according to his character, when we pray in Jesus' name. Come up and get prayer. If you're struggling, if you are in need, do not leave this place without inviting somebody to intercede for you. Church, we did not start the fires of sin and chaos in this world, but we can fight it, not through a song, not through activism, not through virtue signaling, not through rants online, but we can intervene, intercede in prayer. The most powerful thing you can do is pray to stand not in judgment, but to stand in the gap for those who do not know how to pray, how to, how, to, how to seek God for themselves. You can lift them up. You can stand in the gap through prayer and connect them to the power of God and pray on their behalf. May we be a praying people. Let's pray together. Father, in our hearts right now, there are so many conflicts. God, some of us feel unqualified for this kind of role, this kind of activity. Lord, we know that there's a lack of righteousness in our own lives. And we feel, how can we come before you and ask on their behalf when our lives are such a mess? Lord, I pray that in this time as we worship, you would remind them that it's not just words, it's truth, that you have declared them righteous by the blood of Jesus. Lord, there's conflict because Honestly, sometimes we just feel like there's more important things to do than pray. What are we doing praying? We need to get to work. Prayer is the work. It's been said prayer is the work and ministry is the reward. You said that if your people would pray to you, that you would heal their land, that you would forgive their sins, that you would cleanse them of their iniquity. There are so many good and worthy things that glorify you to spend our time doing, Lord. But would you make us a people of prayer? As a church, would we stand in the gap and see salvation brought to this community? Lord, as we come to you now and respond to these things, Holy Spirit, would you teach us uniquely, specifically, as you have been in this time, how you desire us to respond? 
But some of us just need to worship that salvation has come to our house. Some of us need to come up and ask for prayer so that others can intercede on our behalf. Some of us need to feel inclined to fall to our knees and pray for our friends and family members who don't know Jesus, people in this community who don't know Jesus. God, may we not be those who stand in judgment of this community, but stand in the gap, loving them enough to pray. And look to you as you respond according to your character, according to your mercy and your love. You are the judge of all the earth, as Abraham said, and we believe that you are just. Thank you. You've brought justice to us to our sin, condemning sin, and yet saving us. You are a good, good God. We love you and we look to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.